everybody. I'm Casey Forbes. And I'm Sarah Cuvion. And this is Let the Good Crimes Roll. Sarah and I were just discussing how over the series we are. <laughs> because we, we, we watch it multiple times. Yeah, for this podcast, we like to do our research. Well, at least take notes. We're not exactly. Gonna do, we're not going to do extra work. But mm-hmm. we watch it multiple times each episode. And there's five episodes. We've been watching this for like 25 shows We've right now. We've had to see Frankie Richard's ugly so mug many over and over times. <laughs> to forget all about Frankie. Oh, goodness. Oh, God. We got to talk about him today. I mean, how could we not? So this is episode seven for us. I named it Welcome to Crazy Town. Which is what a, am I looking at? <laughs> that is an accurate name for Jennings in this era. Oh, it's insanity. But it is actually chapter four, A Precarious Place in the Murder in the Bayou. And there are no references to the investigation discovery one. Thank God. Right. All right. So we are with Mama Roxanne. The whole point of talking with Mama Roxanne, she explains to us that her house was a safe house for the girls of South Jennings. At my house. It was, oh, it's safe in here. No dick sucking, no pimping, no street walking. It's so good just to be at peace and all alone. And then they would leave off for about two and three days. When they would leave, their hair would be nice. They would be dressed nice. Go off to the motels to hustle up more drugs. They were all young girls, very green. They didn't know what they were doing. They thought it was just like a big hustle. They would find guys with the drugs. They smoke up their drugs. They go to the next guy. It'll be on like that until they just get worn out. Three days later, coming back all tired. It it looked like a totally different person. They could go there. They could recharge their batteries. Once they got to looking really good, they would leave for two and three days and engage in sex work and get their drugs and come back looking completely haggard. So the point of all of this was Mama Roxanne poses the question. She says, you know, when I would get paid, I would go out and get drugs. But these girls had these drugs 24-7 all the time. So where in the hell were they getting it from? Yeah, it was an everyday occurrence for these girls. I thought it was funny because Mama Roxanne's like, only time I would get a lot of drugs is when I get paid. I go buy me $300 worth of drugs, you know. This was everyday, all day drugging. Where were they getting all this drugs from? I mean, you know, I'd get paid and I'd go buy $300 worth of worth of drugs and uh, and I'd be good to go. These girls were, uh, they had the hookup. How did they get the hookup? I wanted the hookup. I wanted to do it without having to uh, engage in sex work. Mama Roxanne is this sweet little looking lady. And she wants to know why it wasn't a quote-unquote good girl who was walking from, say, the north side, which is a good question. I mean, that is the whole topic of conversation this entire episode. It is the issue of drugs. So we are with slow talker Ethan Brown. He is riding down Rocka Road. And it surprises me because Rocka Road was actually where Muggy Brown was found. But mm-hmm. that he doesn't kind of bring that up. Right. He says that this is the road that everyone says, oh, they're out walking the streets. This is the part of town where you go to do drugs. Folks would say when they talked about a loved one who was out running around doing drugs, they would say, you know, 
Crystal's out running the roads or Frankie's out running the roads. And when they said that, this is exactly what they were talking about. This is territory that really only you know if you are in that scene. It's a desolate road. There is no TJ Maxx to be found, unfortunately. It's basically known for, like, drug use. But you really wouldn't know that unless you're kind of in that scene. Yeah. And and, um, Sarah, who had a uh, lovely trailer... Right in the middle of it. Our good friend, Frankie Richard. Go freaking figure. (laughs) Like, this dude, he's like, I have nothing to do with it. Yet he shows up everywhere. Everywhere. So he had, he had, during the Jennings 8 saga, he had a trailer that was set up in the middle of Rocka Road. Right. That'd have been nice to know when Muggy Brown was found, right? I was like, wait, hold up. Ethan Brown just like stops his vehicle and he looks to to his left and he's like, uh, yes, right here is where Frankie Richard lived. Right. And we're like, what? Yeah, he stops and the, the, at the time of this documentary, the trailer is no longer there. So it's basically just a vacant lot, but he's basically just saying, yeah, this is where Frankie was on the same road that one of the victim's bodies was found. And y'all, these are desolate roads. Yeah. Like, it's nothing but fields, the smell of weed, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. I mean, we didn't ride up and down <laughs> Rocka Road, but there's nothing there. There's no development. I just found it really odd that Frankie lived there. We're like, wait a minute. I thought he lived with his mama. <laughs> he tells us, by he, I mean Frankie... Yes, we're talking to Frankie again. When he comes on the screen, do you just go, this guy again? Good Lord. Can we just quote him? (laughs) I know. Turn your subtitles on. He's hard to understand. But he would take women, some of them the victims, to his love shack to party, do drugs, have sex. God, I'm sorry. Like, he we, should not we, be allowed to say that word. We see flashback photos of Frankie as well. And I couldn't imagine. No. no. The only time I thought Frankie might be a little bit of a, attractive was no. when he was a lot younger. Nope. Not you ma'am. Think? Nope. I no. thought I might dance with him somewhere. <laughs> you know, if he asked me, you know, that's what they went down there. Hey, you want to, you want to dance? I might say sure. No, but ma'am. then he'd breathe on me with his meth mouth, and I'd be like, because <laughs> by his own admission, he was doing every kind of drug there was. No, what a dumb question, huh? I mean, I was like, I mean, I thought that was a given. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just look at the poor man's face. Oh my god, yeah, the producer asked Frankie. During the 2000s, when you were hanging out with Greta, Kristen, all these girls, what drugs were you on? <laughs> every fucking thing I could put my hands on. During the 2000s, when you were hanging out with Loretta and Kristen and all the girls, what drugs were you doing? And we're just going to sum this up, okay? Everything he could get his hands on. Mm -hmm. Horse tranquilizers. (laughs) I'm sure he found sugar on on his kitchen table and tried to snort it. It wouldn't surprise me. Now, Frankie is no longer with us, but you can tell that the drugs had taken its toll on him. Y'all... We can make fun of him because we don't like him. We, but, yeah. but you know how when someone's missing teeth up top and like their top lip, like just it like balloons out. It goes. Poof, <laughs> poof, poof. Like I can remember seeing people when I was a child and they did, they would forget to put their teeth in and they would do that. Poof, poof. 
You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? And I would just stare. I wouldn't even know what questions they were asking me. I'd be like, why is your mouth doing that? And then later I learned from my dentist that when you lose your teeth, you also lose, like your teeth go up and support your gums. Oh, yeah. So that's that why there's sense. no. So I was totally distracted. I might have missed half of what he said. Every time he'd fluff well, that I mean... lip out. Thank God for subtitles. So we go through Teresa, who is Brittany Geary's mother, Side Ponytail Sarah, Mama Roxanne, and also Barban. Remember, I'll stab you, Barb. Stab you, Barb. Yeah. Every um, time I see her in the documentary, I'm like, oh, it's Stab you, Barb. Yeah, Stab you, Barb, or our cousin. <laughs> oh, God, I forgot about that. We're probably related to her. <laughs> She's related to literally everyone in this documentary. Is she not? I swear, yeah. Like she was kin to Barb. It's like one big unhappy family in Jennings. Y'all, but that's just Cajun culture. If you talk to my papa, he will figure out some kind of way that we are related. Well, that's how you are identifiable down here mm-hmm. is, oh, you're so-and-so's granddaughter. Yeah. You're so-and-so's daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I went to school with them. Yeah. yeah. That's just how it is down That's here. That's why when you go to like weddings, you don't tell Papa um your last name because he'll figure out how the bride and groom are related. Yeah. And we just, <laughs> you know, we've invested too much time. The wedding cakes here, we yep. don't want to stop it because we're just, fourth cousins by just marriage. Don't ask yeah. questions anymore. Yeah. But so we have Mama Roxanne and Barb, and they're all basically saying, this is a town of 10,000 people. How in the world is this a place that has so many drugs? Coming through it. Well, as it turns out, I happen to know the answer. Sarah, do tell. Jennings sits almost directly on I-10. And I-10 is a potent conduit, the kind of artery of vice, bringing enormous amounts of drugs from Houston to New Orleans on a daily basis. And literally, if you, if you were to draw a line between Houston and New Orleans, Jennings is the right in the middle of that. It just leaves Jennings in a really vulnerable position. I didn't know that Jennings had any sort of reputation one way or the other before I got there. But everybody seemed to understand and talk about almost eagerly about how much drug traffic went back and forth and stopped in Jennings. It turns out that I-10 is a conduit for drugs from Houston to New Orleans. And right smack in the middle is our favorite little town of Jennings. And apparently to drug dealers, the best place to stop off to go and get a latte are small towns. Mm -hmm. Who knew? So drug busts are frequently made in Jennings. So what happens to all the drugs that are confiscated? That's the question. Ethan says it perfectly. The enormous amount of drug trafficking in Jeff Davis Parish has an incredibly corrupting influence on law enforcement. Mm. Yeah. And we're not just talking about like a little bit. This is like a major trafficking thing. I mean, like kilos of cocaine. Millions millions of dollars worth of drugs drugs passing through this little town. That all go to little podunk Jennings, Louisiana evidence room Mm -hmm. ran by our friend Warren Gary. Commander Cormier is here to put that conspiracy to rest. People talk about, you know, law enforcement involvement in the drug trade. Just because there's a a drug problem doesn't mean that law enforcement is involved. I don't recall anybody who's ever been arrested or, or looked into for being a drug dealer as in law enforcement. Can't say that it never happens. It does. He says, 
know of any any officers in Jeff Davis Parish uh, involved in the drug trade. <laughs> Cut to an article. <laughs> Immediately cuts to that article. To the chief of police, Jenny Lassiter, during the Jeff Davis 8 era, getting indicted for pilfering the evidence room for drugs, cash, and other items. That is a direct quote. Pilfering the evidence room. Yes. Commander <laughs> Cormier, can we Sir. please open up our eyes? Now, I want to like... Cormier. I do. I think he means well. He does. Did he have any role in law enforcement um, back then? Yes. Yeah. He he was, remember he, he said he was a part of like when the hurricane came through, like he was yeah. a part of all of that. So yeah, I don't know if he was on the task force, but he was a part of, he's been a part of the, the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office for quite some time. But I just thought the editing in that was perfect because he's like, oh. I don't, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I just don't know of any. And then, boom. I oh, love. Jenny, he slipped my mind. I love the the level of smartassery oh, <laughs> from the document makers, the like filmmakers. I feel like the one. Yeah. It's like, really? It's like you ask. It's like when you ask your kids a question that you already know the answer yeah. to. Like, really? So this isn't evidence? And you just like <laughs> show it after they've denied it. And you caught them in a lie. So South residents... Jessica, which we all know her, inside Ponytail Sarah tells us that more drugs come from law enforcement than drug dealers in jail. Yeah, which, I mean, is... That's very telling, y'all. <laughs> right. And if you're not working for a law enforcement, you are working with them as mm-hmm. a confidential informant. So yeah. let's put this loop together. And if you don't, it's said by, what is it, South Resident Jessica? Is that uh, what you call it? South Residence Jessica. She, they, she says they'll screw you over. Basically. Right. You either work as an informant for them so that they can get their credentials higher up, mm-hmm. making drug busts. Really, if you think about it, and this just hit me, imagine like a part of the reason for wanting to do drug busts is to do what? Get more drugs that you could turn around and sell ultimately. And I'm not saying that's I'm completely speculating on my side, but it would make sense. Well- I mean, when you look at the the chain of events that happen here, it's never straight out said by the filmmakers, but like that's... That's it's implied. Tr- yeah, it's implied. Now, the, the residents of Jennings, the south side of Jennings, are straight up saying, like, no, this is what happened. Right. Because you have, like, side ponytail tell Sarah that tells us it was either she got busted for um yeah. for selling an ounce of weed and she was told, you either work as an informant for me or I'll call welfare and have your kids picked up. And she did. And she, what, worked with them to she bust, like, six, six people. people. But then she realized how dangerous it was to work as an informant. So she quit. Yeah. She quit doing drugs, supposedly, and she quit being an informant. So the corruption has been going on for quite some time. And the filmmakers actually have proof. People started complaining, not just local people, but people, anyone passing through the section of interstate that is considered Jennings. People were complaining about the Jennings law enforcement. And they even went to news outlets, including my favorite dateline you are watching an actual traffic stop along interstate 10 in louisiana how you doing sir how you doing somebody do step back here for me please but what this officer doesn't realize is that the car is rigged with dateline's hidden cameras and so is the driver i know i was just disappointed that <laughs> keith morrison wasn't the one doing it i was like who is this cat i don't know this guy <laughs> where's keith <laughs> he did had you the know note side note 
Keith Morrison is Matthew Perry, you know, who played Chandler. Yes. That's his stepdad. I did know that. I just recently found that out. How cool is that? That is so cool. Just, I would love to imagine. Come on, welcome to Christmas morning. Can you imagine like the dinner table conversations that they could have? Like, so funny, but yet so serious. Like, why can't you be my uncle? Mm -hmm. We have an Uncle Keith, but he doesn't talk like him. We love him, though. We do love him. So, Dateline is here. And in 1997, Dateline came to town and did an expose of the Jeff Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. The complaints were that there is a section on I-10 where people are getting pulled over for bogus reasons and getting robbed by the Sheriff's Office. Mm -hmm. This is justified by a thing called asset forfeiture. What's going on here began as what many thought was a good idea to help win the drug war. Police across the country were given a new weapon. It's called asset forfeiture. When Ricky Edwards takes office, there is a big increase in civil asset forfeiture on I-10. Civil asset forfeiture allows law enforcement to take assets of people who are suspected of, but not convicted of, a crime. That in itself opens up enormous avenues of abuse. Yep. And it, that basically allows law, law enforcement to take assets from people who are suspected but not convicted of a crime. Right. So they have a legal basis for this robbing, this forfeiture here. Yeah. And so to prove their point, the Dateline crew gets a van that cannot go faster than 65 miles per hour, which is the speed limit. And lo and behold, they get pulled over. So can I say something? I would get pulled over every time I would go through that section because I have quite a heavy foot. <laughs> Like 65 they're like ma'am you're going 90 and a 65 it would not they would find they would have all my crap yeah they would have my my purse <laughs> they would have my cell phone they would run out of stuff I, but i wouldn't have any illegal narcotics so they get pulled over it's caught on camera and we never get told the reason why the bogus reason why they were pulled over right they weren't breaking any laws so when the reporter goes to sheriff ricky edwards now this is uh 1997 so yeah. he's pretty new he'd been mm-hmm. in there for about five years they ask him about this and he is just so pompous he's like if he said you were speeding i would have to assume that you were speeding there's financial incentive for the officers to pull these people over and take away money and cars there's financial incentive in the war on drugs yes doesn't that seem odd Well, if my officer said that you were speeding, you were probably speeding. And they're like, well, sir, we physically couldn't go faster than 65 miles an hour. They said you were speeding. So I believe them like that. I mean, like nothing comes of it. Ricky Edwards says there's a financial incentive in the war on drugs. Like, basically, they're saying, what motive do the police have to just randomly pull people over? And the reporter says, there's quite a bit of financial incentive to pull these people over and take away their money and their cars. Like, what do you mean, Ricky? And and, and he's like, well, I mean, we are fighting drugs. There could be heroin in that man's watch. We don't know. We have the right to take it. So Dateline's episode gets over 12 million viewers. And top Louisiana officials find themselves having to do damage control. Sheriff Ricky holds his ground. He stands by it and he tries to say that no, the um, report was completely biased. Yeah, it was unfair. We did nothing wrong. We are just trying to 
fight this war on drugs and and pretty much nothing becomes yeah. of it. It doesn't change the uh, the power structure right. in Jefferson Davis Parish. Which ultimately, if you think about it, has significant implications on the cases because Ricky, what happens with Ricky Edwards? He, yeah, he puts together a multi-agency task force, but guess what? Who's in charge of it? They are. Because they can do whatever they want mm-hmm. in this town and nobody questions them. Right. It's crazy. So we are back with everyone's favorite, Frankie Richard. And the producer asked him, what is his relationship with Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office? He says he don't like him, he don't trust him, and he wasn't going to give him his hard-earned money so that he could support their habit and his habit. I'm like, Frankie, your hard-earned money selling drugs, right? You want, oh, boo, freaking who? <laughs> They're stealing your money. Oh, cry me a river. So remember at the end of the last episode, when the task force told two witnesses not to worry about Frankie, he worked for them. Frankie has been arrested how many times, Sarah? Oh, God, like 23 times. And how many convictions does he have? Zero. Actually. And y'all, these are not little arrest warrants, okay? This is for murder, rape Arson, charges, yeah. arson, theft rings, and... For some reason, he always gets out of it. He always does. Mm-hmm. And even when they have incredible evidence to prove. And we're going to dive into that. There is a recording between the task force and Frankie. It's on January 12th, 2009. This is during the saga with the Jennings 8 and the girls dying. I mean, we're almost at victim number eight at this point. In the recording, Frankie asked, so are y'all going to get me out of here or what? Mm-hmm. To which the interviewer responds, well, we can't get you out. We didn't put you in here, but... You you know, if there's something you can give us, maybe we can go to the DA. You know what I'm saying? And I heard him wink. I know you can't hear oh, a wink, but I heard a wink. Yeah. You know, like Frankie's like probably motioning to the recorder and just being like, yeah, turn, because turn it off, you know? the interviewer says, do you want us to turn off the recorder? Yeah. And he it's, doesn't say, yeah, but I mean, I'm sure he shook his head. And or they something. basically end the interview there. But, you know, Frankie's about to spill whatever right. he's got. He just doesn't want it recorded. Mm-hmm. So this is where... <laughs> This is just a shit show. Excuse my language, <laughs> but it really is. It re- in 2009, Frankie and his mama were arrested after their house was raided by the police. Yeah, they have a little crime ring going on. Yes. You know. Frankie was accused of running a theft ring. In the raid, the police confiscated many, many, many items that were proven to be stolen. And this theft ring would go to Chad's pawn shop to sell this stuff. Do you wonder if it's the Chad that they interviewed? Remember how Chad oh, reached yeah. Yeah. My I Chad. mean, it, wouldn't supr- it would not surprise me. Damn it, Chad. But it's probably not him. Yeah, we don't know. I think they would tell us, but who knows. But the charges were dropped. Why were the charges dropped, Sarah? Because the evidence was lost. Oh, that's right. Yes. Paula Guillory, <laughs> our friend oh, yeah. Paula. Paula is the ex-wife of Warden Terry Guillory, who we talked about a lot in the last episode. Yeah. He's going to come up again in this episode, too. So when all of this evidence disappeared, causing the case to collapse on on Frankie, there was an internal investigation. It concluded that Paula Guillory mishandled evidence that would have, quote unquote, convicted Frankie. Paula was ultimately fired from the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. Remember, she was on the task force. Yes. Ethan actually interviews her and she tells him. What is your account of what happened to the approximately $4,000 that went missing? If I knew that, I would be able to tell you. Okay. I have no idea. So you were in the evidence room? With the evidence custodian entering the evidence when we realized it wasn't in the box. 
Who was the evidence custodian at the time? that she has no clue what happened she was never allowed to give a statement all she knows is she walked into the evidence room and all of this evidence that was against frankie was missing yes now the interesting part here is that she says she's bringing the this box of evidence to the evidence room custodian that is when she realizes like oh wait there's all this stuff missing now casey who is our evidence room custodian here Mr. Warren Gary. Oh. And if that name doesn't ring any bells, let's enlighten you. He was a chief investigator. He bought a piece of evidence from Connie Seiler. You know that crappy ass Chevy? Yes. And turned around and made a profit on it. The Louisiana Board of Ethics thought it was so heinous that they fined him $10,000. So the guy who got in trouble for selling (laughs) a piece of evidence that could have tied Frankie Richard to one of the victim's deaths was cleaned out and sold and And now under that same man's watch, $4,000 worth of evidence that would convict Frankie Richard of being the ringleader of Mm -hmm. this theft just disappears. And what happens? Charges are dropped. Charges are dropped. Nothing happens to Warren. No. And Paula gets fired. Yeah. She's just a patsy. Man. So we learn this isn't the first time that this has happened. I mean, this is a pattern. 23 arrests, y'all. And all of these things. It's just like with Kristen Lopez Mm -hmm. with the truck that Warren bought. That caused the entire case to crumble and charges were dropped. Frankie was let go and that was the end of it. No further investigation. Now, at this point, we have seven bodies that have been found. Mm -hmm. And we've been saying murders. But like you had said in the last episode that there's only two confirmed murders. Right. So the evidence, we can't tell by the evidence that we're given if it's a murder or an accidental overdose. Yeah. What we learn next is that all of these women were at one point or another informants. Yep. Which is another big issue here. Informants were very common in Jennings. A place like Jennings where there's so much drugs and drug use has a thriving informant culture. This is a very informal relationship with law enforcement where you may be a drug user yourself, but you provide information to the police in exchange for something, in exchange for the dropping of charges, often in exchange for being permitted to engage in criminal activity. It was a way to get your butt out of... Out of bad situations. Loretta's, remember Loretta is victim number one. Yes. Her youngest brother, Nick, tells us that the last time that he saw his sister, now this isn't Chad, the last time Chad saw Loretta was at the gas station getting in the car with Loretta, uh, with Frankie Richard, right? So Nick is the youngest brother, and he tells us that the last time he saw his sister, she was supposed to be in jail for a year. But it had only been a couple months and she got out and there was a get together on Mother's Day at their aunt's house. And her aunt asked her, how did you get out so quick? I mean, you were supposed to be in for at least a year. And she says, well, I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but I'm going to be a witness against a drug dealer. And two weeks later, she died. So Side Ponytail Sarah also believes that Crystal was an informant for Terry Guillory. Remember, Terry Guillory is the warden Mm -hmm. in the jail and he is connected with almost all of these women. She said that Terry told her more than once, oh, I dropped Crystal off in her neighborhood. Terry told me that he had picked Crystal up in Lake Arthur and he said he dropped her off in town. And I I was like, Terry, you dropped her off on that side of town and you know, you're a cop, you know, that's not cool. 
He was like, oh, well, it was all right. Nobody was around. But still, somebody's lurking. Somebody sees something. It takes just one person to see you get out of a cop car. And it's all over town and you're narking. And Sarah's big problem with this is if somebody sees Crystal, Sarah says you drop her off in these neighborhoods. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, people, people are going to talk. People are going to know now that she is associated with law enforcement. They see you getting out of his car. That's mm-hmm. not like a, a normal thing. Please don't just drop you off at your house, you know? Right. And so Sarah's point in telling us this is that if you become known as a narc in this area, your life is in danger. Yeah, they might actually beat you to death. Which brings us to a woman by the name of Sheila Como. Sheila Como was before all of these girls. Yeah, she's not part of the Jennings Eight, but her family believes that she succumbed to the same fate as these girls because she right. lived the same lifestyle. She lived a similar lifestyle. She supported her drug habit by engaging in sex work. She was in and out of the jails. Sheila told everyone's cousin, Barb, that she was an informant for the police. She decided that she didn't want to do it anymore because it was dangerous. They, The police provided her with no protection. And two days later, Sheila was found outside of a funeral home, nearly beaten to death. The only thing that kept her alive was it was freezing cold that night and it is believed that it clotted her blood. And y'all, we see a picture of her. Yeah. It's not. She. They did some damage to her. She was hospitalized oh. for about a year. They yes. Say. So she does survive this this initial attack. Mm-hmm. Um. But she is in the hospital for about a year, and ultimately does succumb to her injuries. Yeah. And Sheila's daughter, Lakeisha Myers, tells us every time she would start talking about what happened, they would call the police to come in so that they could question her about it. And every time the, the detective that was working her case showed up. She'd stop talking. She she wouldn't say anything else. Was she afraid? No, I, I do believe she was afraid. Are people that scared of the authorities here? Mm, I believe that some of them are. Why? What, what do they hold over them? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> uh, I'm, okay. I'm sorry. That's, that's okay. Prior to her death, any time that she would wake up and talk about what happened, what they believed to happen, the hospital would call her caseworker, some a police officer. They'd come up there and she would quit talking. Yeah. Well, her family believes that, yes, she was an informant, but at this particular instance, she was wired up for a drug bust is what her family yeah. believes. And then she decided she didn't want to do it anymore. And then all of a sudden she's yeah. beaten. And so yeah, she wasn't found by the police. She was found by a man who happened to be walking by. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she was there for hours in yeah. the freezing cold, beaten almost to death. Yeah. Now, I don't know what your take on it is. Like if her beating was the result of the drug dealers finding out she was wired or the police officers making something happen to her because she didn't want to do it anymore. I don't know. Because that is the question. It's like, do these police, are these police involved in this? Or is it, they have no regard for their safety. They make them informants. And then whenever they use them, they just throw them back out there knowing that something could happen. That is basically said that once you are not useful to them anymore, they just throw you back out to the wolves. And y'all, this doesn't just apply to girls either. We meet a guy by the name of um, Steve Gunter. Well, I guess in the Cajun where they're like, Steve Gunner. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly what it is. So we're going to say Gunner, but it's spelled like Gunter. I have to throw that T in there. So Steve Gunner was a good friend of Terry Guillory. Mm -hmm. He also, he, he lived 
I don't want to say he lived a similar lifestyle as these girls. Like he didn't engage in sex work. To yeah, get but drugs, he was. But he was a drug addict. He was a drug addict. He was associated with these girls. They partied the same places, mm. so they he, ran in similar circles. He also partied with Terry Guillory. Yeah, he was know. good friends with Terry Guillory. It was confirmed he was an informant for Terry Guillory. My boyfriend Steve, him and Terry was always together at the bars when they would go out. And Terry would do favors for Steve. Like, Steve would get in trouble, say he got a DUI. Got locked up in the parish. Next day, he was out. I don't know anybody that goes to jail for a DWI and gets out the next day. Unless you're an informant and you're helping the police. Steve would set up bus for Terry because that's what Steve would help him with. So it's June 9th, 2007. Loretta Lacoste, and like I said, these names never disappoint. She was the girlfriend of Steve Gunner. And she tells us the two of them were arguing. You know, she was still pissed off from the night before when they were arguing like all of us women tend to do. (laughs) She like picks it back up again. Right. You know, because he likes to act like nothing Mm -hmm. happened the night before. He's like, hey, honey, would you like some eggs? Shut up. We are not over this. I'm still (laughs) mad. But the fight escalates out into the streets which (laughs) this is my question (laughs) me and my husband obviously we've gotten into arguments it's never escalated to the streets all i can think is is that they were arguing and he got pissed off and he walked out the door and she said oh hell no and she walked out (laughs) i'm not done talking to you which I'm not that type of fighter. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, my, I'm, I am like the youngest person in my neighborhood on my street. So, like, if I sneeze too loud, I think my old neighbors would call the cops. <laughs> or God forbid my dog is barking at a raccoon. Oh, Lord. The cops get called. Not the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office. This is a, in a town o- over called Lake Arthur. Yeah. The Lake Arthur police officers get called. And one of the um, officers by the name of Chad Romero. Remember that name because that name will actually come back up. We're going to talk to Chad. In this episode? No. Oh, okay. We're going to talk to Chad in the next episode. Okay. Because there's more information on, on this incident. But mm, what well, I- There has to be with what we find out. Right. So Chad calls Warden Terry Guillory because apparently it's known that they're friends. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, can you come help us with this? Which is weird because Because he's a warden. He's a warden. He doesn't have any prior skills or training with uh, negotiating. Is this when the wardens leave the the damn jail? Is that common? Or is that just a here, this is what he's doing kind of thing? Like, right. I thought wardens, like, pretty much stayed Ran at the prison. The jail. Yeah, like, they were there unless they, you know, were called to a meeting or something. Uh, girl, we in know. crazy town. That's why it's called Wake- <sighs> Welcome to Crazy Town. Like, apparently anything goes here. Exactly. They just make up their own rules as they go. The fight escalates, right? The police come out. Larita and Steve both say, look, we're fine. We don't need any help. We'll be quiet. We'll go inside. And they don't tell us how it it escalates, but somehow it escalates. Mm -hmm. And Larita goes to the backyard. Steve goes back in his house. And they make it sound like um, he just barricaded himself in. Yeah. This was a bit confusing because Larita says that she tells the officers yes there's a 22 in the house but i hit it and he like don't he, know where it's at yeah he doesn't know where it's at so at this point wouldn't you think there's there's no th- now i don't know what was said and what was but it doesn't seem like there's a threat well i would think on. that the moment the police show up 
And the two people who are yelling, they say, look, look we're just we're having fine. an argument. Yeah. I'm sorry. We'll stop. Like, we'll why stop. would the police not just leave? Yeah, that's what that was my question. Like, why is why is it continuing to escalate? He probably like they probably like smart mouthed each other off. Yeah, I'm got, sure. Yeah, it got out of hand. So Steve is inside, supposedly with a 22 gun. But Larita tells us, no, I hit it. He mm-hmm. there's no way he could find it. Larita's in the backyard. Terry decides to be a hostage negotiator, apparently, even though he is not qualified for that. This is where things don't make sense to me, okay? Yeah, none of this whole scenario makes sense. It's insane. So they shoot, and we see pictures, but they shoot a ca- two cans of tear gas yeah. in there, right? Tear gas normally does what? Like it makes you tear up because it's tear gas? Yeah, it's burning your eyes and such. So we're told that the the police shoot tear gas in there, and then Terry by himself, because like who the hell is running the show? Apparently Terry is. Terry goes in there. Terry's story is that he identifies himself. Steve, who just got shot up with tear gas, has the note, the wherewithal to raise the 22 that Larita said was hidden. Yeah. He raises the gun up and Terry opens fire. Nothing about this story makes sense. No. And it just gets even more bizarre. I mean, I've never been shot with tear gas, but I would imagine it probably burns your eyes right. don't you think right we meet steve's sister beth beth tells us that an autopsy was done the autopsy was done by the coroner in lake charles but the jennings coroner he basically tells her um and i'm gonna be blunt he said i'm tired of this shit i'm tired of covering up for these people I'm tired of covering up for these people. Like he was mad. Yeah. The coroner's name was Richard DuPont. He tells them there are gunshot, there's gunshot root uh, wounds all throughout Steve's body, but mm-hmm. specifically in his wrist. Yes. Not the back of his wrist, his wrist that his palms are on. Yes. Now that means he could not have possibly been holding a gun pointed toward Terry Guillory. Mm-hmm. It's almost like these are defensive wounds as in he was trying to shield himself exactly and that's what you know i watched this with my husband and he said the same thing he's like this guy was if this guy just got blasted with tear gas his eyes are burning and then all of a sudden he takes on fire he don't know which direction he's coming from and he's got gunshot wounds through his wrist but through the palm side of his wrist he's obviously defending himself he's just trying to shield these bullets yeah now i have a question Mm -hmm. so they you see like a diagram from the autopsy and it's just like a drawing but they basically mark uh, wounds on mm-hmm. the body. All those little black dots were those bullet holes. Yes. How many? There were oh tons more than could be counted. Bullet holes in this man. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand what happened to cause that kind of reaction from police. Girl, I, that makes two of us. And if his hands were up so shielding himself. many. Yeah. And if he, y'all just, like I said, I can't get past, you're saying this man has a 22 rifle, but his girlfriend says, no, I hit it. He doesn't know where it is. And do, then you're saying. Do we know if the 22 was found by him? I don't know. They don't say it in the documentary, but I'm wondering, like, where was the gun? Was it even there? Like, did it, they go get it yeah, afterwards? Because if she hit it, then supposedly nobody knows where it is. So was it found by him? I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's a weird story. And it gets even weirder. So after, you know, we talked about the corner, but prior to the corner, Terry tells us that after he shot Steve, he grabbed him by the waist and he pulled him outside and left him on the, uh, on the front yeah, lawn. And I'm fairly certain you're not supposed to do that. Um, no, I would think not. I mean, the only reason I could think he did that again, because there was tear gas in there and maybe it was burning his eyes. Too. I mean, but still like, you're not supposed to move the body. And, and, and then. They leave that poor man. Oh, and and they show his his corpse, y'all. 
Like, there's no blurring out on this one. Like, you no. see it all. And they leave that poor man on the front yard lawn in the South Louisiana heat for hours. Well, did you notice that the guy, one of the guys, I don't know if he worked for the sheriff's department or he worked for the coroner that came to, like, wheel his body off was wearing freaking Hawaiian shorts. <laughs> I was like, did he get the call in the middle of a luau? Oh, my God. I, I just was like, what the hell is he wearing? Both of them... <laughs> Like, you know, they had to put their beers down to go to the scene, but he's wearing Hawaiian shorts. I didn't. I didn't catch that. I but I'm. Like, but what is up? I'm not. Nothing is surprising me at this point. It is just a wild show here. So we have the coroner who says there were bullet wounds in his wrist, palm side. We have the, uh, the coroner from Jennings saying, I'm tired of covering for these people. Mm-hmm. And finally... The Jennings Corner tells Beth, who is Steve's brother, uh, Steve's sister. All the news reports had said he shot at police officers. He hit a police officer with his fire from his 22. But that's not the true story. They told us it was actually their own officers, Ricochet, that hurt the officer. And then Mr. DuPont called and said, Ms. Trahan, I have some information I was told by the Lake Charles coroner I could give it to you. He said there was no gun residue found on your brother's hands. I said, what? And he's like, there was no gun residue found on your brother's hands. The Lake Charles coroner said that they tested his hands for gunshot residue And they found none. None. So that should be the final nail in the coffin that Terry's lying. But then the Lake Charles coroner calls the Jennings coroner back and he says, what information have you released? And he says, well, everything you told me, I relayed it to the family. And the Lake Charles coroner, what did he say, Sarah? They got mad at him for telling the family anything. And completely changed his story. Yep. He says that the body was so gun riddled, there was no sense in in testing the body Mm -hmm. for gunshot residue because it would be everywhere. But my husband said, but if the man shot a gun, there would be a significant amount on his hands. Yeah. Yeah. So why would you not test it anyway? That's the first place you look to see if there's gun residue is the hands. So this, to me, this is suspicious. And it was just crazy. Beth goes, I find it suspicious. I found this suspicious. (laughs) What? I would have been jumping up and down. I would have been screaming like, no. Now, it, it is worth noting that the family of Steve Gunner brought a civil suit against law enforcement in Lake Arthur and uh, Jefferson Davis Parish, but it was ultimately unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Evidence was presented to the grand jury to Mm -hmm. see if they would indict him, and they chose not to, but it doesn't tell us exactly what evidence was provided. I'm so confused on that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So we know that Steve knew all of the Jennings eight. Beth believes Steve probably knew too much. Mm Mm-hmm. He, at one point, was Terry's neighbor, was a frequent flyer at his jail, and he was his informant. Do you find it odd that it was you killed your informant in a supposed gun shootout when you weren't even supposed to be there in the first place? Right. To me, that's what's crazy. There was no investigation Mm -hmm. into the fact that Terry Guillory had Steve work as as his informant. Right. Like, what are you doing here, Terry? Well, was it, you wonder if it's, um, because it's mentioned, like, these informants, it's like an informal agreement kind of thing. So maybe it wasn't even on the record to where his colleagues would even know about it. Yeah. Um, It makes me think if Terry Guillory is, it seems like he's doing everything he can to shut up Steve 
Gunner right. makes you wonder what Steve Gunner had on Terry. And why did why did Terry go in there by himself? Yeah. That's weird to me. I mean, I know was he, he said, was he by himself? Yeah, because all those gunshot wounds could not have possibly come come from one. Well, gun. remember, it wasn't just Terry who opened fire. There were others who opened fire. See, so he entered first, but then others followed yes, behind. And the news tried to make it sound like Steve opened fire first, right. and that Steve shot some of the other police officers. But further investigation showed that the morons had gunshots. It was, it was a ricochet. It was their own weapons that shot them. (sighs) Y'all, this is a mess. This is a mess. After a complete internal investigation, of course, nothing happened to Terry. His use of force was completely reasonable and and justified. According to this investigation, like I said, a grand jury refused to indict him. And like Sarah said, there was an attempt to sue. in civil court. we, we know we, have no law enforcement background so we we have not been trained in the proper procedures to for something like this even from an outsider's perspective everything about this seems weird yeah and and i think beth is the one who says how is it two people who were arguing on their front yard ended up with police coming in right and shooting her brother yeah It, it doesn't make sense to me and i guess maybe because i wasn't there i don't know any of the I mean, details between the only thing I can like it doesn't make sense to me because if he even if he was inside with a 22 mm-hmm. then he's a then maybe they were thinking okay he's a threat to himself right but then they walk in and shoot him up right it, after so you it, just yeah shot tear gas in yeah there. It, not, it does it doesn't make sense we need a. I wish we had like a cop friend to come sit with us and say, "What are your thoughts on this?" That could be some. We could interview a police officer. I would love to and say, "Can we give you this information? What are you, what is your response to this?" Yeah. Is if this- anybody knows a police officer that's willing to like answer some questions for us, yeah, to we- to look at this situation and because I mean, cause, I mean we we totally acknowledge that we don't know right everything all the training that a cop goes through. So mm-hmm. we could use some Just insight see, here. Right. I can find some, I can find a police officer and ask him. Ethan Brown decides to pull incident reports or criminal case files that are related to the Jennings aid or anyone associated with them. And there was one address that kept popping up and go freaking figure. Like we don't get made fun enough down in Louisiana about our names, but of course there's a place called the Boudreaux Inn. <laughs> That is a place that was frequented quite often by everybody involved in this universe of Jennings 8 era. In the Jeff Davis 8 era, the Boudreaux Inn was the place in town to go for sex and drugs. I worked at the Boudreaux Inn at the cafe. It was known as a cheap motel in town to go have a good time. You know, if you wanted to get high, uh, whatever you was looking for was there. Ernestine worked at the Boudreaux Inn. She was a maid. Loretta hung out at the Boudreaux. That was Loretta's spot. That was her spot. Today it's shut down and Ethan drives past it and it looks like an absolute crap hole. I'd imagine it probably looked like a crap hole back when it was yeah, open. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it ever looked very nice. Y'all, this place is a brothel. I mean, that's what it is. It's basically, yeah. you Because they do an interview with a former employee. Mm-hmm. And she just like, yeah, I can like turn those rooms over like three times a night. They charge by the hour. They charge by the hour. It would be cheap, too. $25? Yeah. 
Good Lord, I guess y'all were making a lot of money. But you know, no brothel is complete without a cafe, right? Because Side Ponytail Sarah tells us that she worked in the cafe. Now, yeah. what do you think is served at a brothel cafe? I, I wouldn't know. It'd have to be a lot of protein <laughs> to keep up your stamina, right? Maybe some carbs, you know? You get exhausted from that drug bender and... Oh, Lord, I don't even want to know. And then it gets even worse. Ernestine was a maid there. Yeah. Can you imagine being the person that has to go and clean up after these people? Oh, I know. Like two and three times a night? That had to have been awful. I bet the smell was terrible. Oh, I'm a big smell person. Yeah. And it turns out Loretta, she was a, a regular there. That was like that, one, was her that was her spot. Yeah. Steve, the victim that was just killed, he lived next door to the Boudreaux Inn. Yeah. Talk so about he was, location. He was there all the time. Frankie frequently pimped his girls at the Boudreaux Inn. Yes. He tells us that was the spot. He said it, he, the narrator says he's deeply involved in the sex trade at that time. So the front building was to purchase drugs and women, and the back building was where everyone partied. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Use your yeah. imagination. And don't forget to get your um your late night snack. <laughs> At the brothel, I mean the Boudreaux Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> I just couldn't get when she said that she worked in the cafe. I was, I was like, like, "Cafe? What, Come on, lady? <laughs> I'm sorry." Like the Boudreaux Cafe. <laughs> After you get banged and hanged, go get you some <laughs> caffeine. Yeah. Ethan decided because this place was so prevalent to the people in this universe, he pulled every incident report or call for service at the Boudreaux Inn during the Jennings 8 era. There were thousands of pages. One incident report says there was a report of a quote unquote crack party. No. Frankie beat up victim Kristen's dad, Andrew. Oh. Muggy Brown was in the background pulling the alarm. Oh, jeez. And Whitney, who is victim number four, got stabbed. All in one party. I just picture, remember from the Aristocats? Oh my gosh. Remember the Disney movie The Aristocats? There's like, like they're big <laughs> there's like a big fight all over. Quiet! You know, that's what I picture. It just sounds like an absolute circus. So the, the episode ends and we learn that this place, the more that Ethan dug, the more powerful people he realized were invested in this place. Because that answers the question, why was a brothel allowed to remain open? Mm -hmm. The cops knew that this place had constant sex work, had constant drugs, but it never got shut down. Right. Now, when you say powerful people, you mean... We will dive into that in the next <gasps> no, episode. No, I need to know. Yep. Join us next Wait, week. So, did they say it on this episode? Or no. Is it, okay. No. He just says that the place was owned and operated by powerful people. Ooh. And then okay. the episode ends. And then next week, we will have one episode left. And thank God. Yes. Because I'm, I'm ready to leave yes. Jennings. You can join us for the final episode in this as we celebrate saga being done with this one. Oh my gosh <laughs> so y'all thank you for joining us i want to remind everybody that we're on facebook we're on instagram we have an email uh let the good crimes roll at protonmail.com and you can visit our website let the good crimes roll.com who knew that domain would be available i know thank and you. you can listen to our podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on on Apple. And yeah. tell your friends if you like this podcast. Come on, y'all. Tell the more people you tell, the more we can 
can get involved in this. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. We will be back la- next week for the conclusion of the Jennings Aid, and we can have a discussion on what we think is going on in this crazy town. Goodness gracious, y'all. Well, thank Stay you tuned. for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.